Welcome to the Academy of Esports podcast. I'm your host, James O'Hagan. I'm here with Sky Kawaloa. He's from the University of Hawaii, uh, coming to us from Hawaii. Sky, thank you for being on the Academy of Esports podcast. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah we met very briefly at the University of California, Irvine, last October at the ESC conference. Uh, and uh, to me, that was one of probably the best uh, esports research conferences that I've been to um, in my time involved with esports. I don't know what your feelings were on that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, my second year there. I was at the first one presenting uh, a paper that I did. And it was uh, it's a fantastic group of people. Um, and I think it's something that I think will only grow and, and collect a really diverse crowd of people who are interested in esports research from a number of perspectives. So I really was was happy to see that continuation uh, at that, that second one. And I see that uh, those of you who don't know, Sky is uh, fairly active on Twitter and is also a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii. But before we get into your PhD candidacy, before we get into all the great things that you're doing in your uh, state of Hawaii, what kind of drew you towards esports? What was your experience kind of growing up that maybe brought you to this, this point where you're at right now where you're researching and really trying to develop uh, statewide uh, um, experiences for kids in Hawaii? Yeah, for me, um, the journey is um, one that, of course, I think for a lot of us, um, we can sort of like sympathize with is that we started with games early mm -hmm. on in our lives. Um, you know, I go back all the way to uh, NES with, Ninten uh, with uh, Nintendo. Mm -hmm. uh, I became a avid Street Fighter player in San Diego, where I grew up. So I mean, I'm, you know, I'm from Hawaii, but I, I also lived in California uh, for, for a while. And uh, in San Diego, I became obsessed with Street Fighter as, as well as skateboarding, as, as people in California do back in the early 90s. And, and um, yeah, it was one of these things where it became a – it's really weird for a lot of us that look at video games as something that we do as either leisure or for fun is that when we look back at our lives, especially in our early teenage years or early adulthood, like how significant video games have been – Mm -hmm. in kind of keeping us busy or, or keeping us entertained. And it was only when I want, uh, went into my master's and PhD program that I had that sort of like reckoning with myself when I was thinking about a particular topic to study for for my PhD. So I'm, I did my master's at University of Hawaii and I, um, I was in the School of Communications. And for that stint of time, I did research on... Um, what is called Kakao Talk, which is a Korean instant messenger program. Okay. And um, it was something that I was sort of fascinated with because I lived in South Korea for about 10 years uh, before I started I, my master's program. I must ask, were you a military family then? No, it was just going there to visit my, my wife's family. Um, oh. And yeah, so my wife is, is South Korean and we met in college and after we graduated, or after I graduated, we decided to take a, a year gap and uh, stay there. One year turned into 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was one of those things. Yeah, it was around, from, like roughly around from 2003 to 2000, I think 10 or 11, something like that. Okay. Uh, and it was, yeah, one of those things when I was thinking about, again, a topic of what I was going to study, uh -huh. uh, PhD program, which is always a very sort of uh, uh, difficult thing, especially for me to kind of like pin down something to commit to. Mm -hmm. um, 
that I start to think about, yeah, you know, what what were interesting things and moments in my life in the past that um, were meaningful and video games immediately popped up and it kind of shocked me. So I decided to take a look at the Street Fighter scene because I had been absent and away from it for so long. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that Street Fighter scene may have died down. So I'm talking about, you know, I stopped playing Street Fighter back in like 93 or 94. Mm-hmm. Never touched it, never back at the community, um, which was really strange because I was so deeply embedded into the community for so long. And that long absence had me thinking, oh God, I hope the scene is still there. Little did I know when I went to YouTube and I typed in Street Fighter that popped up was these m- list of Evo clips that mm-hmm. kind of shocked me and kind of blew me back. It was not only that the Street Fighter scene did not die down, but it actually completely flourished in the time that I, you know, that I've been away. So that was the catalyst for me was to start to think about, you know, looking at video games as a topic of inquiry and specifically looking at esports. So I approached my advisor completely expecting to be kind of laughed out of the room mm-hmm. and to say, you know, for example, that, you know, I wanted to study something called esports. Thankfully, I have an advisor that was very open-minded, very uh, forward-thinking about uh, technology and society issues. And she Mm -hmm. told me, and this is roughly around 2015, she told me, you know, take the summer, look what's happening, see what's taking place. And um, if you think it's something that you want to pursue, let's, let's go for it. And right around 2015, you know, that was where you had RMU when they started their program in 2014, Mm -hmm. that stories about college esports had caught my eye. And so as soon as I started seeing what was happening with RMU, I went back to my advisor and I said, you know, this thing called college esports looks interesting. I might might want to take a look at it. And right after then, I made my first trip in 2015 to Robert Morris University and to UBC to begin my research. Now it's 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 funny that uh, there's so many. It, you may not realize this, but there are so many similarities between kind of our experiences coming up. I guess uh, I graduated high school in '93. Um, my background was I think I went the opposite direction of you though. So uh, born in San Francisco area and moved all the way out to New York before moving back, um, skipping along the way because my father worked for the airline industry. Uh, coming back to the Bay Area in 1987, and yeah, I remember seeing Street Fighter for the first time. Uh, it was at a 7-Eleven near San Jose State <laughs> University, uh, and and I just remember my friend Darren, who had who just obsessed over this game. I remember we were we were taking a course at San Jose State um, as high school students, and I think we would skip class a whole bunch of times just to go play Street Fighter Two, mm-hmm. and. I could, it was it was revolutionary for the time in a lot of ways. I know there was the original Street Fighter game, which wasn't nearly as popular, but Street Fighter Two, I mean, there was the combination of the joysticks with the uh, the, the six buttons that you had, uh, the variety of characters, the multiculturalism even of the characters, if you will, even though they're they're very stereotypical, I guess you could mm. say from today's terms. But um, the 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 gameplay was just so fast, and the the competitions, you know, they would last you know, only a couple of minutes if you went one-on-one. Um, it, it was, it was, uh, it was a cultural phenomenon, uh, if you will. I mean, yeah. there was even a street fighter movie that starred Raul Julia and, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. So, 
<laughs> no, I mean, you actually, yeah, you hit it on the nail. It was the first time I saw it, and it just, again, it's one of those, those personal reckonings where I, I had to actually sit down and think about it. You know, the first time I saw it, and I've always been into martial arts as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I did Taekwondo for a very long time. I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and so I've always been drawn to themes related to martial arts. And so when Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2 came out, I was just completely fascinated by the entire spectacle. I had never been a part of a, a culture of arcade games before Street Fighter, even though, even though I did play arcade games, I never was drawn into it. I mean, racing games were something that were kind of particularly interesting to me, but as you rightly say, the the sounds of mm-hmm. Street Fighter that you hear, as you say, it was actually in, in a 7-Eleven that I first played it. <laughs> the ability to choose these archetypes of martial arts characters, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I immediately identified with Ryu, and so to this day, it's amazing how much I have not changed. Um, I only play Smash because I can download Ryu as a downloadable character. I nice. hate every single other character on <laughs> on in Smash. I actually despise almost every character, but I just only go back to it because there is, of course, with Smash Ultimate, you have Ken now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just one of these crazy, freaky things where something as simple as a game kind of draws a continuous line through your life, and Street Fighter's been that way for me. And and it must be for me. My character was Balrog, and, and I know that wasn't possible until there was a Street Fighter. I think it was Street Fighter Ultimate when you could play the boss characters. Um, is because before I think it was just the original eight. It was eight characters mm-hmm. to start with, and uh, but when when I was able to start playing the boss characters, and Balrog became my my person. I liked Balrog because you didn't have to kick; it was all just punches, and the button combination <laughs> was very simple. I am not a good gamer, um, but I would I would stand and watch people play these games for a while and it was just so fascinating not to be a not to be good at and occasionally I would throw some quarters in but just to be able to stand back and watch the game play and watch how people interacted that to me was the most fascinating part of this was was there any in, in, anything like that for you or are you more just like yeah let me get in and get get to playing the game no it was the the fact that I was able to play against strangers that was also the draw Mm-hmm. And for me, again, it goes back to this idea of how powerful arcade game culture is, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later, oh, yeah. to, I think, a healthy development of esports overall. And it was this idea of shoulder-to-shoulder gaming that that, that um, completely fascinated me because it was drawing upon that, that interest and excitement that I had with traditional martial arts where you mm-hmm. would stand toe to toe with somebody that you may not know and and go into either physical or digital combat and that you know Street Fighter <laughs> 2 you know I hear the that, chickens. That really represent- Yeah, sorry. That's yeah, I live in Kaneohe in Hawaii and so we have a nice collection of chickens in the background running around. We're <laughs> really fine. No, but um yeah, it, it was absolutely that that appeal. I mean, it was even u- unique to to Southern California because I would actually play in an arcade where the some of the top players at this particular arcade that I would go to was actually um, frequented by some of the most notorious gangs in the oh, San Diego wow. area. And so I would actually play, and again, it was this unique uh, 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 ethos of video game culture and arcade culture where in no other context would I be close to a particular gangster in my life mm-hmm. at that time. But with Street Fighter, I would walk into the same room with some of these gangsters, place the quarter down, 
plus, you know, press the button, get together and start to sort of bang away at a game in which we would just enjoy our time together. And it was just one of these things where we would, we would shed our, our personas um, for the few minutes that we would interact with each other. And um, it was a special kind of odd moment to, to share with, with people that I would normally not uh, associate with. And that's interesting that you bring up the whole quarter culture. And I want to let's stop on that for just a second, because uh, I don't think people realize, you know, gaming, again, has such a negative connotation, especially for us growing up in the 80s and 90s, uh, that arcades were a waste of time. But for a lot of us, these were our, I guess you'd say our social clubs in a lot of ways. These were, uh, we did get to interact with people in different ways. Again, people who we wouldn't necessarily go to school with or associate with out on out in our neighborhoods. But uh, the, the place for me was Tilt, which was in uh, Foster City, California, at a, at, a, at a mall called Fashion Island, which basically had shut down by that point, except for the ice rink where Christy Yamaguchi used to train. And then um, mm. the, the arcade was there. And oh. the, the, the idea of being able to just put your quarter and walk away, you know, stand back from the from the thing and not somebody have come up and, and grab quarters and run off. I mean, I never saw that happen. Um, mm-hmm. was really kind of a, I, you know, there's like those, those weird social, um, norms, you know, the ones that you don't have to speak about, you just know what to do. And everybody kind of respects the quarter and respects the order and, and next yeah. player up and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And again, it's one of those things that I, I think I would like to see sort of move into the next iteration of digital games culture when we talk about esports because I think there's a powerful, uh, social cohesion that is made and 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 fostered through that sort of face-to-face physical presence in gaming that is definitely lost when it comes to mediated uh, interactions through through technologies and so yeah I'm really I'm very happy that um, yeah we had this sort of like common sort of uh, shared experiences with with Street Fighter <laughs> well and uh, yeah. now let's kind of transition I guess a little bit from going from the arcade you're now in Hawaii and you're bringing up again the idea of can we build this into our current um, competitive structure? Being on an on a uh, in a state like Hawaii, made up of multiple islands and and small communities and a very tight community. What is for for those of us, especially um, mainland, who you know it's very easy for us. It seems to travel interstate, if you will. What is it? What is the culture kind of like in Hawaii when it comes to? Uh, schools and competition and and things of that nature because I asked that question because uh, I did an interview recently uh, with a gentleman from Ireland and I thought oh this would be a great way for Ireland to connect to the world and they found that there were technical issues going off island so what what is Hawaii um, what's the Hawaii gaming culture like at this moment yeah so for us um, in, in Hawaii I think it's important to acknowledge number one sort of the both of the unique aspects that Hawaii does bring to the scene. I think one of those things is that is it's gaming culture and sporting culture in Hawaii is very tightly, tightly knitted to, to family culture as well. Mm. So if you live in Hawaii, one of the common things that people will ask you when they first meet you is what high school did you go to? Mm-hmm. So there is that very small town folksy feel to Hawaii, even though Hawaii itself is one of the densest locations in, in the United States. Um, you know, we have close to 1.2, 1.3 million people, about a million cars, we have around, I think, close to the same number of skyscrapers as San Francisco as oh, well. Wow. Many people are really shocked that Hawaii itself is now an urban, a proper urban center. Hmm. I mean, we we vie for the top worst traffic uh, uh, locations in the United States between LA, New York, and us mm-hmm. in Hawaii. So 
it it is a it is a place that is quickly modernizing and getting very very crowded, but at the same time, it still maintains that very traditional and a very uh, Asian um, mm. cultural feel to respect of family, elders, um, and 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 community itself. So that really kind of contextualizes, I think, whatever we talk about games or sports itself. That Hawaii um, is deeply embedded in that in that um, environment. But at the same time, it's a, it's a place that um, sits at the crossroads, as it always has, between the continent of the U.S. and East Asia. Um, that provides a unique context, um, again, with its gaming culture. We have always had a fabulous gaming culture, whether it is digital games, video games, or just general board games or anything that comes to, to games itself, um, gambling as well. Um, mm -hmm. We really, really enjoy... Um, the context of games has been a very, very strong, strongly embedded feature of Hawaiian culture. Um, and I, I do want to, I do want to, I do want to stop on that for just a second because I remember going to Hawaii with my high school band in 1993 and talk about that kind of the arcade culture. I saw it there uh, when I was in Oahu. Uh, I spent a lot of time in an arcade there. But the other thing I saw a lot of was Pogs, which um, I had never heard of Pogs, but apparently in Hawaii they had hit big. And even seeing that pog culture, uh, if you will, where, where kids were trading these, I mean, these milk caps uh, the, that yep. sat on inside yep. of cartons. I mean, it was it was just interesting to see that uh, as an 18 year old. Um, actually, I think I was 17 at the time, but seeing that as a 17 year old. Um, and, and as you said, that 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 family feel that kind of um, how you identify and, and it was all very much there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Pogs, I mean, you know, that is that is a that is part of the past and, and also something that people continue to want to bring back. There is actually a video game that a local developer created that he wanted to turn into a competitive game that is revolving around Pogs. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> I'm actually shocked that you brought that up. I didn't know you know you you experienced that part of the 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 past of Hawaii. But yeah, it's firmly there. Yeah. 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 So that that love for for games in general, whether it be high-end, um, you know, resolution-type games with with high-end PCs or bottle caps, we we kind of span the, yeah, span the spectrum there. Yeah. And and you've also, as you said too, you also spent ten, about ten years approximately in South Korea. So you've had you've had some, I guess, a, a fairly diverse view on esports culture and gaming culture, I guess, around the world. Yeah. So you know, esports and. Uh, for me, has been this this again underlying um, um, continuous line of of reoccurring themes, either in the past or in the background or at the foreground, as it is right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I lived in South Korea right around the time when um, South Korea was just beginning to host the the um, the Starcraft? World Cup with no the world uh, the World Cup with uh, with uh, Japan. Oh, soccer. This is, uh, yeah, soccer. Okay, I was there. Right after that happened, and um, it was an it was an amazing experience because I seen something that I not expected to see. It was just sort of this this amazing collection of of people coming together to support their own country, and that was my first introduction to South Korea. Sort of this collective mass of 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 again sort of not sort of problematic nationalism but it was this idea of being all together and supporting us a, a, a single cause mm -hmm. and that was kind of something that i saw with how um south korea was kind of addressing the world in many facets and mm -hmm. 
for me, esports was something that was not at the foreground. I was still playing video games, and I was, um, of course, you know, playing StarCraft as well at the time. Mm-hmm. But it was very much in the background for me. I just, for the ten years that I was there, it was one of these things where I just saw happening and was kind of in disbelief, but also wondering, is this something? Is this going to be something in the future that we're going to have to deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a, an amazing experience. One of my first experiences in South Korea was literally going to my uncle's house um and turning on the tv and going to well flipping past ogn's um channel and seeing a collection of starcraft broadcasts Hmm. and i i thought it was a joke i mean i just couldn't believe it It, the first time i saw the the channel it was literally just um the camera was just focused upon the game itself and i thought oh this is interesting and then the camera pulled back and then you had the players Mm-hmm. And then the camera pulled back even further, and then they, they would show the fans. And that was my first introduction into what would be kind of proper, like, modern esports um, at the time. This is, again, 2004. I was just like, this is really interesting. And you you weren't an educator by trade. I know that. What, what were you doing uh, as far as work at this time? Because now it sounds like, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're doing with esports in Hawaii kind of translates more into the education field. But what what were you doing at this time where you saw this and maybe it stuck in the back of your mind? Um, what was I doing in South Korea? Yeah, time? yeah. As far as career career choice at the time. Yeah, I was actually teaching English. Um, oh, okay. At, yeah, um, I was teaching English at a university um, in Incheon, and mm-hmm. um, it was just again just one of those things where I just never expected like to to imagine that something like competitive gaming would be brought to the fore in my life. Um, you and even me both. At the time, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, um, but yeah, at the time I was just teaching English um, um, at a local university. Yeah, and because you did bring up Robert Morris and, and Robert Morris was kind of the, the impetus that got, got me started as well too. And the story I tell people is it was the right, right place, right time, right location where uh, one of our assistant superintendents, I was in Rockford, Illinois at the time, which is only about an hour west of Chicago, and uh, had heard about Robert Morris and Kurt Melcher handing out scholarships for esports. And he kind of just asked, can we do something like that? And it was this weird light bulb of like the permission I'd always been asking for. It was like the oxygen in the room finally got let in. The, the passion mm-hmm. project, I guess, if you will, kind of got ignited. Where was your... I guess was it through your through your masters and your PhD work where the I guess the the passion for this the connection the the permission came through because you did talk a little bit briefly about the, you know the getting the okay for this research for your PhD. Yeah, absolutely. It was this idea of being allowed to do serious research and inquiry into a topic about esports. That was for me, I think the um, the opening step. That allowed me to to dedicate more time and to also be more confident in myself that I could pr- um, pursue this as a serious topic. So, I think uh, for me in my personal journey, you know, the way I, I am sort of situated in the larger discourse of the esports community, especially the collegiate esports community, is that you know I I I, I orient myself as somebody that is really um um. I take care of how the research and the research community is is looking at the collegiate space. So mm. I my own research is not oriented towards, for example, learning about better communications, learning about team dynamics, learning about 
um, um, competitive uh, strategies that that uh, players can articulate in high stressful situations. I really do take a very um, um, personal in, uh, investment in the players themselves, and that hmm. came about largely because of my trip to Robert Morris mm -hmm. in 2015, where when I began to do my my research, the the very questions that I wanted to ask and the very sort of um, particular theoretical lenses that I was sort of wanting to impose upon the students mm -hmm. were so wholly outlined or out of line from what was actually being told to me and how the students were, were interacting with me that I mm -hmm. went back to the drawing board after I finished my time at RMU and I, I asked myself, you know, what were my goals in doing this type of research? And eventually I really started to have a, a rethink about caring about the students, not just asking about questions regarding expertise and talent and skill play. I wanted to actually figure out like, well, not just figure out, but I wanted to give voice to the students, mm -hmm. to have them tell me what were things that they were going through that were either um, constraining, problematic, or enabling um, for them as they have done in any other sort of field. What what sort of things are important to them as they go through this career of collegiate esports, and that really that's really set me off. Yeah. Is it is it more to their experience through their esports program, or is it just their esports participants, and you're finding out more about what makes them tick? I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it was. It started with the particular parameters within the program itself and what it has to offer, but it soon um, spilled over like all qualitative research. So my personal research um, perspectives are definitely qualitative and ethnographic. And mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in what the programs and what their time in the programs was offering them, but it's of course naturally spilled over to uh, before the programs and after mm -hmm. the programs. So for me, yeah, it was important to look at that whole trajectory. And I know that uh, uh, I, me also working on my PhD, mine is in the field of instructional technology and looking at esports and looking at uh, self determination theory, intrinsic motivations. Um, I've done a lot of um, uh, qualitative and quantitative work. Um, just mm -hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing that I'm putting into my actual uh, dissertation work, but more just informational about our own programming that we're running in Racine. And the. I guess the structures of the programs are so very important. It's not just, of course, as we know, and those of you who've listened to the podcast know, when I talk about this, we're using esports as a vehicle for so much more than just playing games and buying computers and, and setting up really flashy labs. Um, we see so much more that's taking place with community building. You know, we talked about the the arcade culture and, and the respect and how people rub shoulders together in those spaces. Um, the, the, is, is this looking more to at the community as a whole or looking at the individual? Um, well, for me, it's specifically, you know, as you know, I, you know, I, I've been to UCI for the past three years. Mm. Um, the time that we caught each other was actually one of my, one of my last visits for my research. Um, so I'd been there three times before the previous three years and, um, I've really, you know, narrowed my research down basically around a case study of the particular players and teams for mm -hmm. UCI 
roughly around 2016 to 2018. So the study itself is very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, there are particular larger themes that can be useful when studying the community itself because UCI um, has brought in a number of unique players and unique and players from unique circumstances that um, I think can can, um, can help us to imagine what I think will be important public policy questions that go into the future at education and esports. Mm -hmm. Just because the fact that UCI has brought in both um, very normal students that look at esports as a hobby and nothing more. Mm -hmm. And they have a couple of those. And also players who look to the tier two scene and say this could be a possibility for them to to experiment with semi-professional esports. And then you have players who outright want to go back into the LCS or into Overwatch League and to 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 live the former glory days mm -hmm. of their lives as professional players. And so for me, UCI really represents this interesting Petri dish of, of intersecting interests, mm -hmm. expectations, and, and possible future promises or failed promises. Um, and for me, I think that that's the important thing is that, and that's the reason why I chose UCI as a spot is because of the fact that there really is such a unique intersection of students in that, in that place. Yeah, I can see that as well too. The, the one issue I guess that I have um, and, and I've expressed this sometimes to, to Mark uh, Deppy and uh, conversations I've had with people at UCI. Um, you know, on the surface, the face of the UCI esports program, if you will, is, is very male dominated, uh, white <laughs> and Asian. Um, you don't see a whole, but again, they, they point to the diversity behind the scenes, if you will. You know, uh, Sam Anton being a perfect example, she's been on the podcast now a couple of times. Where, I guess, even as I came back, I was at a conference just this past weekend in Des Moines where I saw eight collegiate esports teams, all of them male, um, all of them uh, predominantly white male. When is this flip? Because we know girls are playing the games. And, I, and as much as, yeah, we have, we have girls and women involved in, in, in our programs, I don't see them as faces of programs. I don't see them as, as, as leading as much as supporting. Do you see any change happening with this in your years of looking at this over the, over time? Am I off base to even to, to suggest like, are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? I guess is, is the, is the phrase. That is the paradox, right? The idea that well, this is the paradox is that they're actually women in esports, girls in esports, women in ecology sports um, is nothing new. Mm. They've actually been there from the beginning. Right. If we look back at the very first um, of the origins of CSL, which is, you know, if we if you look back at the history of collegiate esports and however you define collegiate esports, if we take the point of CSL as kind of the successful example of a, of a continuous program that's moved forward into to today, um, that was started by Mona Zhang. Right. She's been there from the very beginning. There has been a collection of women, as you rightly say, in the background. Um, Carmen from UBC, who literally um, quit her position on the league team to run UBC Esports. Mm -hmm. um, there's a collection of women who, for whatever reasons, have always been there but have always been in the background in supportive roles, managerial roles, or team support. What is happening now with, with institutional support of Varsity Esports um, has, not much, has not changed much. The very same types of dynamics that we've seen at the very beginning 
of grassroots-led, student-led college esports has replicated in institutional varsity-based uh, esports. How that is going to manifest in the future, I am not sure. I think it's one of those million-dollar questions because the more we push it from the top down, the more inauthentic it looks sure. to the community itself. Sure. Uh, and it's a very careful balance, as you know, as, as many of us know. We want to help prosper, diversify, and be more inclusive within the space for young women and girls. Mm -hmm. But to do that with a with a with a with a heavy hand or even even a moderate hand um, will will it, it will there'll be there'll be pushback. There'll be pushback. I, I, I can see that, I, and I and I agree with you. It's just. Uh... You know, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, we've been doing this for so many years, and I, you know, a lot of us, and I think you've expressed this as well too, in, in in the past, is looking at stereotypes and stereotypical gamers and building programs that only speak to stereotypes or to the kids who are the surface level ones who are immediately attracted to this. Um, you know, I, it's just it's one of those things. I'm not saying it's keeping me up at night, um, but it's one of those things where I I keep a very watchful eye to it and. Um, I haven't seen anybody who's really doing it well. Even our program, um, my high school program that we have in Racine, you know, my goal is I want to have a cross-section of my teams or a cross-section of the school. The demographics of the team should match the demographics of, of our, our school. Uh, right now, we're only about a third of our team is people of color and about 10% are women um, involved in, in the play space. So I know I'm not there yet, and I, I'm just looking for that. But the collegiate, to me, is more it just seems glaring in again who's the face of it who's leading it versus the support i want to i guess i want to see more face but that's something where as you said if we're really forcing the topic you know are we doing it in an authentic way are we doing it in a way where intrinsically motivates people to be part of it i don't know that i don't know that at all yeah so. it's really one of those things where it could be intergenerational it could take a very long time i i'm of the opinion that this is a long haul question. Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to, for example, Title Nine issues, um, the current debate around this, especially with with esports, is that um, it may be a case in which it in which it's less checking boxes and filling quotas, mm -hmm. and more about a case in which we create a culture of inclusivity, inclusivity, and see where that leads. Mm -hmm. And that is something that um, is another way of looking at this because. Yes, checking boxes and filling quotas is kind of the direct path towards the type of inclusivity we want to have. Mm -hmm. But yes, it looks very bad. Um, <laughs> it can um, it can push people away, um, and it might be a better way in which we take a a less um, 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 heavy-handed appeal towards these type of goals and just simply create the right types of conditions, both at the club level and at the varsity level, to let things flourish for now, to create those kind of spaces. And I don't, I don't want to use the word safe space because really there is no such thing as a safe space. There are only kind of like safer spaces for many people. Mm -hmm. So to create those kind of safer spaces um, in which women feel um, included. So yeah, you're, you're completely right. You know, I don't see anybody in the space doing anything that, you know, makes me smile and think things are going in the right direction. But I think the best we can do for now is to make sure that we're being um, as inclusive and as open and as welcoming as possible. And as we kind of transition, because I want to talk a little bit about your program at, at the University of Hawaii here. Um, 
as we transition into that, you know, one of the things too, it's not just the inclusivity that I have great concerns about, especially at the collegiate level. I have concerns about the churn, I guess you could say the churn rate of, of kids coming in and out of programs of scholarship dollars being given to kids. And, and what, and really we have no data right now because this again is so new. We're only talking about, uh, the collegiate, uh, scholarship dollar amounts and the teams have really started to pop here in the last couple of years. But, um, are you at all concerned? Maybe I'm one of the few people. Are you concerned about, you know, what will be the graduation rates? What will be the the churn rates of kids in these programs? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's you know, tack it on to a list of things that we're we're worried about <laughs> in the space. Yeah. Um, you know, I am concerned about the the these these important outcomes that we're looking to. Um, when it comes to traditional metrics of of success for a student itself, and graduation rates are an important part of that. I think um, if you're going to want to convince administration um, about the, the the usefulness of these programs, definitely. Um, you know, we're living through technically the, you know, at least the the first class that mm-hmm. um, has graduated, uh, beginning with with RMU itself um, of scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, esports is still very young. Um, and yeah, you know, it's one of those worries. It's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of just thinking like, you know, how are programs going to address this? What type of things are they going to do to make sure that students are both committing themselves to, to their academics, but also their time, um, as competitive players. Um, but the one thing that really kind of moves me is that beyond graduation rates, um, I'm really concerned about, again, going back to this idea of, what it what do the students themselves see as problems um, via their careers as college esports players? Mm-hmm. So yes, graduations are very important, and those those are those are the, one of the things that we can put our finger on and say this is a quantitative measure that we can see that's either improved or not improved. But I I sort of go back to the idea that I really want to look at the personal stories of these players because right now a lot of research, a lot of um, speculation about the college esports space. Um, is um, wandering in the dark and mm-hmm. also imposing a framework that is perhaps not um, sensitive to the players themselves. So part of my goal of my research is to outline these basic questions of what are important to these players? What concerns do they have? What type of complexities are they going through? What type of issues are they going through as not only students who have to get a career um, when they graduate, but also the type of personal risks that they have to go to, go through to actually get into these programs themselves. What, when I say what themes risk, are you, what themes are you seeing? Are you seeing any themes right now, or is it pretty individualistic as far as some of those questions that you have? Well, they're definitely you know definitely um, based upon what I've seen so far. Um, the themes themselves are number one. Um, that there's been less conversation about the role of community colleges that I, I'd like to see in this space. Um, I've re- I've come to realize that yes, there is a lot of interest in high school esports and how the mm-hmm. high school esports scene can serve as a pipeline into college. But from what I've talked about with um, the community that I've been investigating is that col- uh, that community colleges play a really important role. Mm-hmm. A really important role in the experiences of players that go into collegiate esports at four-year institutions or traditional colleges themselves, and so one thing that I would like to like 
get out there in terms of a, a wider discourse is to understand, yeah, what are the roles of community colleges? Because community colleges are a fantastic space to develop for esports, but they suffer from, you know, as you're talking about with churn, it's even worse at the community college level because right. of its transient nature. But at the same time, a lot of students really form, you know, beyond the high school side of things, really form a deep identity and a in a in a clear, you know, vision forward in their lives through community colleges. And so for the players that I did talk to, a lot of their competitive experiences did not happen in high school, at least not in an organized setting, but actually took place through their experiences in community college. And so that's a big thing that I'm, I'm kind of sort of looking at right now. And, and that's I'm great that you bring that up because in Wisconsin, that seems to be where the growth is happening right now. In fact, in my own community of Racine, we have Gateway Technical College, which is a two-year uh, community college. And that's where we're launching a, a new esports program here in the fall, with the idea being that, you know, we want to make sure that this experience that we have for our 230 scholar gamers that, that we currently have right now in the Racine Unified School District, that even if everything else goes sideways, that they have a, I guess, a, a social uh, connection to a college that doesn't currently even have much, it doesn't have an athletic culture at all. So they do have a lot of clubs and they do have a lot of, of things like that. But, you know, to be able to say, hey, you step onto campus and there'll be familiar faces and there'll be a familiar space and a familiar experience that you're tied to in your high school experience. I think the collegiate or the, the community college experience is going to be important, at least for our community. We also have uh, UW Parkside, which is a, an extension school of the UW system. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, UW-Whitewater, which is also another one of those relatively close. But I really believe that you're right about this whole community college experience. And, and not just having the teams there, but, for example, every community college seems to have a, a unique um, thing that they do, if you will. And the technical colleges especially, the one in Racine, yeah, of course, we have the, the cybersecurity and the computer networking and all of this stuff. But we also have a tremendous uh, food service program, an event planning program through that. Mm, and, right. and of course, you know, I think people look too surface at what collegiate uh, esports can be when they say, oh, we're going to have our team and we're going to have like a, an esports business track or we're going to have an esports um, uh, marketing track. And really, I just look at it and go, what are you doing well already? And let's just take what you're doing well already and let's support it with Let's support it with this program. So, for example, again, the hospitality and event planning. I mean, you know, with an esports tournament, that it is all about event planning and hospitality and and food preparation and things like that. Those things are so important to this, and you don't necessarily need to develop a whole separate track, but you can leverage the university resources that you have now to do what you're doing and do it really well. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's sort of a, a weakness of of not just esports. Um, college esports or high school esports or professional esports overall, it's I think a, a weakness of um, how people perceive technology and innovation itself and, and technology advancement mm -hmm. is that they believe that everything has to be sort of new, everything is sort of only happened now, and everything has to kind of be separate from the past. And I think one thing that's been apparent in gaming communities, especially for here, us in here in Hawaii, and it's sort of a discourse that I've been trying to 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 emphasize over and over again, because I do have those questions about, 
you know, will esports require us to build out something new, something different, something different, for example, from our journalism program or mm -hmm. from our media broadcast program? And I think one of the, the responsibilities for us in the space itself is to to temper expectations and to um, to put a realistic spin on what actually is going to happen or what the, the path forward means. And a lot of it is not building out something completely new, but all, but really um, piggybacking off of an existing infrastructure. Right. That is what is um, quite shocking to a lot of administ administrators is that they think that esports is something completely drastically new, but it is not. You can build upon what is existing already. And again, it's one of those those biases I think people have with technology is that they assume this is a complete um, breaking off of the past. <laughs> and it definitely is not. It's definitely not. It, and as you rightly say, when it comes to media, broadcasting, events planning, community management, so much of what we need depends upon traditional knowledge domains. Right. We're not talking about something completely different. And I think that actually puts a lot of administrators at ease when I when I do say that, because that is something that they can work with. That's something that they can they can understand. And, and it, it and it even comes down to something as simple as um, Oh gosh, what was I going to say? Uh, it, 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 I mean, we hit we hit on just a whole lot of stuff there. But um, I go back to again. You talked about the technological side, and people see the computers and the games, and they look so foreign and, and alien and unique to them. Um, the the similar thing happened probably about fifteen years ago, and all of a sudden, schools started handing out laptops to kids, and then it became iPads. And they expected there to be this tremendous jump in learning that was going to take place because kids had access to a, a device all day. And what we saw was really no change at all. Test scores stayed flat. Um, yeah, the kids now had access to a, a computer, but teachers were still teaching in very much the same traditional ways. And I think it soured a lot of people on technology for a very long time and made them hesitant to make investments. Um, and I think with this, again, you're right. We have to temper those expectations. And as we build these programs, we have to make those expectations realistic that what you're doing is saying, let's shift. We're going to shift some dollars. We're going to shift some mindsets and some ways of doing things to, to modernize them. But hopefully, you know, your learning structures, your, your institutional goals, your institutional values are still there. And, and aren't, this isn't something that's a part of, but, or apart from, but a part of what you're right. doing. So that, I guess it kind of transitions us into the program that you're building at the University of Hawaii now. So where where are you at right now with your program? I know I've seen that you've played matches against Boise State, for example. Dr. Chris Haskell's been on the podcast before. Where where are where are you at right now with your program at the University of Hawaii? Yeah, right now, um, yeah, you know, thanks for to to uh, Dr. Chris Haskell. We got a, a front page uh, showing with our SDSU match, so it was really nice of him. That's really nice. Uh, yeah, um, we are currently, so I just turned in the business plan to the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, President uh, David Lasner had asked um, me and the uh, the committee that I work with to come up with a, a long-term business plan that will look at creating college esports across the, the system at UH, which is 10 campuses, both four-year institutions and community colleges, um, both on Oahu and across the islands. And... Um, it's quite ambitious. I I originally wrote a business plan just for Manoa, the the, the main campus on Oahu, <laughs> and then uh, he came back and said, "No, let's look at this at, at the systems level." So that's awesome. Uh, yeah, it really is a, 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 a he has been a, a real visionary um, 
for us um, in, in imagining something that is um, beyond what I imagined. Um, so I turned in the business plan for him to look at, and it's presently in front of him, and we're just waiting and seeing as to what the next big step will be. But um, whatever it is, and I, I don't imagine things really changing, I think things will be moving forward. Um, it will be a, the first initial phase will be a, a year or two long project in which both me and my, my assistant, Kevin, and um, perhaps some other hires as well at UH, um, will require us to go to the different campuses across the islands to see what is taking place. Because it will take a, a good year, year and a half, to get everybody close to point A, where mm -hmm. we can say, okay, let's move forward as one, as a system itself. Um, I don't want to come in there and say, for example, you know, here's the Monao campus. We're imposing upon a structure on all you guys of the different islands. <laughs> I think the key for us will be to go there and to talk with the community and to see what exists, what type of games they're playing, even you know, to even see if they want to create a competitive program, um, and to really just fact check and, and collect um, some information about the different communities there. So what you're saying is, is that even though, again, people in the mainland or across the world just see Hawaii as Hawaii, uh, you're looking at Hawaii from the perspective of every school, every island. And it goes back to, again, the communities that you talk about, people connecting to their high schools. Right. It, 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 the, the island of itself is much more diverse than it just being Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, um, it is, it's important to acknowledge that because even though we are Hawaii um, as a state, um, each island itself is very different, and each island itself is going to have a gaming community that is going to be catering to a different set of circumstances. Um, not every campus, I imagine, is going to have intense interest in League of Legends and Overwatch, and that's something mm -hmm. that we're going to have to uh, work with because we do have a lot of a lot of students who are interested in you know rhythm games. Um, Osu is a really popular game on our campus, and I'm sorry, we have brought game? that in. Osu, it's a rhythm uh, rhythm kind of game. Is it like Beat Saber? Um, and, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Basically, and uh, we have to kind of work within those those parameters because you know we hope to you know get students involved in a competitive program if it's possible, but I don't want to be in a situation where we are just coming in and telling what the uh, the community should do. So it's really gonna be a fact-finding mission. It's gonna take a while, but like I said, it's an ambitious program, uh, an ambitious plan that the university has uh, taken on. And I'm, I'm really happy to, to, to be a part of it. And, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask to just touch on this. So the, the university system is building up their program. Where are the high schools at right now in Hawaii? Um, so the high schools right now, we have close to um, 50 of them participating. It should be probably around 50 of them participating in um, um, League and Smite and um, in other types of games as well. I forget which ones there are besides that, um, that are informally associated with the high school. I think Smash might be one, but right now it's primarily League. Um, there are all competing, um, you know, together, um, under play versus, and, um, this is something that, uh, us at the UH level, at the high school levels and at the even middle school levels are trying to, and also at the state level are trying to figure out how we can move forward with, 
with um, really a grassroots uh, participation at the high school level that developed all by itself. It's been really quite um, vibrant. Like, you know, I've been really happy to see people um, start to volunteer their time, the teachers themselves. Um, it's really kind of been an impressive um, effort across all sort of uh, levels right now. But uh, the high school side is, is, is a, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to explode. And it's going to continue to explode. And it's one of the things that the state and, and, the, and the universities are, are just keeping a watch on right now. Perfect. And uh, so obviously when you've got 50 high schools, you've got a pretty good pool. I, I, I don't imagine that many people leave uh, Hawaii to go. I don't know what the numbers are to leave to go to, to university or college. But uh, I would imagine that having that kind of a pool also helps with development of program as well for the collegiate. It does. Um, I think that's one of the key things for the high school side of things is to see what we're going to do at UH. Um, I think that's what everybody is sort of waiting right now upon um, the middle school and high school and at the state level is to see what UH's next step is going to be. Um, we are such a massive entity on the island when it comes to education and employment that even though the high school side of things are taking off, they are really looking to see what is going to happen with University of Hawaii. Because again, it lends to that that discourse of what are the next steps for these students at the high school level. Um, mm -hmm. Parents, of course, are very happy to see their kids involved with technology, and you know the tournaments are are fun to see. And um, having kids sort of collaborate uh, around technology has been a mission for the high schools. Um, but eventually, parents are going to ask, what are the purpose of these tournaments? What are the mm -hmm. purpose of these games? And of course, that natural expectation is going to lead to is there something beyond this is there a pathway to to college and that's why the university itself um, plays such an important role because all three levels have been important in in pushing forward the discussion around esports but right now yeah everybody is looking to uh and seeing like what's the next big step fantastic well uh sky uh kawaloa i really appreciate your time here uh, appearing on the Academy of Esports, well, audio, but <laughs> being on the That's Academy right. of Esports podcast, is there anything else that you wish to add? Any other uh, ideas or thoughts that we've missed that maybe you wanted to get out? Um, uh, for now, I, I think for us as a sort of uh, stay tuned type of thing, you know, like I said, you know, things are happening this year. Um, University of Hawaii, I firmly believe, is going to be making a big announcement about what is going to take place um, in the coming semester. And um, I only look forward to, to bigger and better things. But uh, at the same time, um, as you rightly say, and I think it's, it's, it needs repeating, is that, yeah, there are significant issues in the collegiate space. Um, and those issues revolve around um, gender and racial diversity. And um, that's something that I, I hope as we sort of further talk about these issues, the, that Hawaii itself can can lend an interesting perspective because for us in Hawaii, you know, we are a diverse state. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things that has been kind of a, a hallmark of, of the university. Um, but at the same time, we also have our own issues with inclusion and diversity. Um, we're trying to figure that out as well because, you know, this, this issue is not going to go away. Um, like I say, it could be intergenerational. Um, but I think the more that we um, share and talk about what we're doing, I think the, the, the better it will be. Perfect. Yeah. Sky Kawaloa, thank you so much for being on the Academy of Esports podcast. 
All right. Thank you, James. Pleasure talking. That will do it for this week on the Academy of Esports. I've been your host, James O'Hagan. Esports are organized competitive video games allowing schools to redefine their athletic culture, diversify opportunities for student participation, promote good physical and mental health, increase collegiate scholarship pathways, and play games. We can never forget the importance of play. The mission of the Academy of Esports is to support these ideals. The vision of the Academy of Esports is for all students to experience the fun and joy of playing competitive video games. You may follow me on Twitter at Jim O'Hagan. That's at J-I-M-O-H-A-G-A-N and through the Academy of Esports account at T-A-O Esports. It's a great way to get the latest blog posts, podcast episodes, and news coming out of esports and education. And remember, you can continue your engagement by going to www.taoesports.com. You can also connect through Facebook at www.facebook.com slash taoesports. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to our time again next week.